let's move on to what we're talking about tonight. We've been looking at um, man being made in the image of God and part of a kind of a broader study on just kind of going through systematically through uh, truths, that, things that we know to be true, things that God has revealed to us in his word. And so we, as we've kind of uncovered this topic of being made in the image of God and what it really means, uh, just so you know, is kind of where we're headed. The next step really is to talk about a man's sinfulness and what the fall of man really means. Um, next week, uh, we'll be talking about, and we're not meeting next week because next week's Thanksgiving, right? The week after that is business meeting. So the, the two, two weeks, um, we'll be talking about man being comprised of uh, body and soul and what, what that means, how we understand that. And then we'll look at man's fallenness, his sinfulness, and what that really means. Um, at some point in the process, we're going to pause that and pick up a study of the Old Testament and look through uh, Jewish history as we kind of take some of the, we've been in the minor prophets in Sunday school on Sunday morning, and so I want to take from that study, come out, because we're going to be coming out of that study uh, this next quarter, is, or this next, uh, I guess it's 12 weeks, is going to be our last trip through um, the minor prophets, and then we're going into the New Testament. And so, um, so at some point in the near future, we're going to stop and we're going to take a, his, a basically a history lesson of the history of Israel, um, starting back in Abraham and kind of go through that for a little bit um, before we pick up. So um, that's kind of a snapshot of where we're going in the future. But what we've been on is the image of God. And so we've asked, what, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? And there's several ideas that have kind of been floated out there in, in, by different people. Some have said that, it, that being made in the image of God is a reference to something like intelligence or reasoning ability. Uh, maybe it's our emotions, the fact that we're emotional creatures. Uh, we have the ability to commune with God. We're self-aware. We have language or communication abilities. Uh, we have the presence of a, of a soul or a spirit or both. Uh, we have a conscience. We have uh, dominion over the earth. And what, what I said back then a few weeks ago was that it, it seems to indicate, the Bible seems to put forth that it's really a unique combination of all of those things is what it means to be made in the image of God. First of all, in Genesis 1, we have the, the, I mean, right there in the context, God tells us being made in the image of God is having dominion over the earth. That's one of the big things that, that it means to be made in the image of God is that just as God has dominion over all of creation, he's given some of his creation dominion over pieces of his creation. And that was certainly us. But part of the tool set that we need to have dominion over the earth is reasoning ability. Emotions, um, the ability to communicate, the ability to commune with God, um, intelligence, things of this nature. And so it seems like really a combination of all of those things is expected when we talk about being made in the image of God. Um, and then we said Genesis, 6, uh, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, records God making man in his image, which has significant implications for humanity. So not only are we made in the image of God and we have certain responsibilities, but there's implications that come along with being made in the image of God. And some of those are ex uh, told expressly to us in Scripture, and namely that the lives of human beings are more important than others. God tells Noah this as they get off the ark. Uh, if a man is killed, you're going to take his life because in his blood is is the breath of life. I've given that to him. He is made in my image. Um, we also saw that every man, no matter his eternal destiny, has an inherent dignity. James points this out, that with the same mouth that we praise God 
and we also use it to curse men who are made in the image of God. That shouldn't be the case. So they have inherent dignity and we should treat them as such. Um, It also means that we're creatures who are morally accountable before God for our actions. We have the ability to imitate Him in all of His communicable attributes. Paul tells us that in Ephesians 5. Um, And that mankind is not a blight to the earth. That mankind was put here to steward it, to have dominion over it, and is good. We're also sinful and we have the uh, the, the ability to abuse that, but by and large, God has put us here with a command to steward the earth, and so we have that ability. Um, last time we met together, we said that, the, that each of the sexes, uh, male and female, is said in the text to be created in the image of God, and so it eliminates uh, an inferiority of either sex to the other. So, Part, part of being made male and female, that is to be made in the image of God. A man is fully in the image of God. A, f- a woman is fully made in the image of God. Together, they are able to fulfill a purpose for which they are made in the image of God, and that is procreation. Right? We saw that there in the Genesis text. Now, uh, something that needs clarification that I want to spend tonight on is that though the two are equal in value, they are different in role and different in purpose. Now, this topic in this room is probably pretty favorable, my guess. But, but uh, in the culture at large, this topic, even in the church, is a powder keg. So it has, a, has a, a, a definite opponents, but has people on both sides that are, um, that are pushing hard. One would be the side of complementarianism. The other would be the side of egalitarianism. So complementarianism would say that men and women are equal in value, but different in role. They have different roles. And those roles are to be respected, and those roles are outlined in the New Testament. Egalitarian perspective would say that men and women are, are, um, are both, they're both equal in value and equal in role or responsibility. There's no role that is specifically designated as men or no role that's de- designated specifically as women. They are, they are equal in both value and role. And so uh, we're going to walk through what I, I feel like the, new, the, the Bible is actually pointing to. And so the first thing that we need to say about it is that while we affirm the inherent dignity and equality of all people created in the image of God, we must also affirm that the two sexes are different in role. In other words, the fall is not the cause of male headship. This is one main argument of egalitarians is that the, the, what Paul is describing in the New Testament or what the Old Testament is laying out for the role in the family or the role in the church is a result of the fall. And so because of the fall now, uh, women have been subjected to men. And so there are at least 10 things that we need to kind of point to as we go through the here. The scriptures are there. You have the second page that we're going to read some of the scripture, some of the text as we go through this. And if we don't get to all of it tonight, we'll, we'll come back. It's okay. Um, but uh, the first is Adam was created first, then Eve. We, I think you probably all of us know that. That one's a, 
I'm going to say that one's a gimme, all right? And let's just move on. So now keep in mind, some of these arguments are better, I think, than others. But together, they kind of form one whole corpus, right? It's, it's, it kind of, it's, it's all part of the argument, right? So the first is Adam was created first and then Eve. Adam, not Eve, was the representative head of the human race. Now, what does that mean? Adam was the representative head of the human race. What does it mean to be the representative head? Yeah, there was a responsibility that fell on him. Um, look at your, on your passage list, look at Romans 5.12. should be about, oh, about a third of the way down or so. Romans 5.12. Somebody read that out loud. Yeah, so here, uh, and, and, and if you continue reading on in Romans 5, 12 and following, you'll see that what Paul is laying out is an argument that it was in Adam that the human race fell. Once Adam fell, uh, the human race fell. Once Adam took the bite of the forbidden fruit, the human race now was uh, morally subjected to God, as it were, or, or uh, held to account for their sins, and it wasn't in, uh, in Eve, because Adam was the representative head for the human race. Once Adam fell, the human race then was subjected, as Paul says in Romans 8, was subjected to futility uh, by God. There was, a, there was a futility that was brought in. Um, three, God spoke first to Adam after the fall, suggesting that he was the one primarily accountable for what had happened. Again, I think that's probably a weaker argument. I would put that on the weaker side. But it's still an argument nonetheless that God addresses Adam first in Genesis 3-9 um, with uh, a set, set of punishment. And um, then, of course, he makes a tons of excuses and, and things like that. You all know the, the text. Um, fourth, Adam uh, was the one that named Eve. Adam named Eve. Um, Ver, uh, number five, God named the human race man, not woman. <laughs> They're mankind. Uh, number six on the second page, uh, Eve was created as a helper for Adam, not Adam as a helper for Eve. Eve was created as a helper for Adam, not Adam as a helper for Eve. Um, this next one I think is, is, uh, is, is, is really strong and it's really... a, a an important argument. The curse brought a distortion of previous roles, not the introduction of new ones. Now, look at Genesis 3.16, and look what's being said here in Genesis 3.16, down towards the bottom of the page. Um, to the woman... He said, I will multiply, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Um, the way that literally reads is your, your desire shall be for your husband, and, but he shall rule over you. Your desire shall be for him, but you will rule over him. And, and 
a lot of times in a lot of translations, it presents a difficulty in interpretation. How do you understand that your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you? And so egalitarians come in and they say, well, see, so what that means is the subjectivity of women came as a result of the fall. But that's not what's being said in the text. In case in point, if you look in the next verse, uh, or in the next little passage that I've listed there, Genesis 4, 7, he says, if you do, he's talking to Cain. Remember, Cain is, um, is there and he is, uh, he's struggling, all right, over what to do about his brother. And so he said, God tells him, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your, des- your door. Its desire is, the SVI is contrary, it's literally for, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. You understand what, it, what the ESV brings out of the interpretation is that what's being said there is the desire now has changed. Where the man and woman were working together in perfect harmony, where Eve was functioning as a helpmate for Adam, and they were, they were performing their roles in the Garden of Eden perfectly, uh, once sin entered the world, now the, the role has turned to uh, one of uh, adversity. So now it's much more difficult to work together as husband and wife. I'm sure none of us can attest to that, Uh, surely, right? Uh, I think we all know that. If you've been married for even just, we can talk to our newlyweds who've been married, how long you've been married? married Not even a year yet, right? Uh, Six months, everything's still hunky-dory? No arguments. No arguments? I think you're lying. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> I mean, you, you're married for not that long of a time before you start realizing how uh, difficult it is to work together. And just as Cain is struggling over what to do with his brother, God tells him, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you in the same way that Eve's desire now is for her husband, uh, but you must r- rule over it. So the the command to Cain is really the the same uh, thing that's told to the, the man and the woman in the garden as they're punished is that now there's going to be adversity here and there's going to be a struggle. And so it's not that subjectivity of the woman or submissiveness of the woman has come in as a result of the fall. It's that now she does not want to do that and the husband wants to abuse that, right? That's the, that's the problem. That's what's come in. Um, uh, eight, sal- the salvation that comes with Christ in the New Testament, reaffirms the creation order. So look at Colossians 3, 18 and 19 here. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This is a, a, one of the, the things that, egal, one of the arguments that egalitarians make is that now that we are in the church, now that we are in Christ, the early Christians are following some cultural norms, but we can break those cultural norms because now we, we are part of a new kingdom. But what it seems as though all of the commands in the New Testament are not that in regards to the relationship between man and woman. Now, it seems like the commands are to be restored back to the way they were in the Garden of Eden instead. That we can now fight sin nature, and instead of being adversaries in the home, we can once again be properly complementarian in the home. 
or anywhere else, as it were. Um, Nothing in the New Testament, the second blank here on number eight, nothing in the New Testament suggests that male headship has been reversed by the work of Christ or that it cannot coexist with full moral and uh, spiritual equality between men and women. Uh, Number nine here, from the beginning, marriage was a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. I think this is the absolute strongest argument. Paul makes in Ephesians 5, 31 to 32. Somebody read that for us. Ephesians 5, 31 to Yeah. So Paul is making the argument back pre-fall to God's own words, or I guess it's really Moses' words in, um, in Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse 24, uh, where the same thing is said. He cites that in verse 31, and then he adds in verse 32 of, of Ephesians 5 that this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church that the mystery that was profound, the mystery that was hidden from people for so long, is that the marriage relationship was a picture of Christ in the church even way back in pre-fall days. Now, that's huge because how often do you think Christ submits to the church? He doesn't. Command is not the other way around. He is the head of the church. Um, his submission in death was to the Father, right? So he, he, is, uh, he is the head of the church, and Paul is saying that the marriage relationship refers to that. That's its picture. Uh, and he goes back pre-fall to make that argument. Number 10, we should also take note of the parallel between the relationship within the Godhead and the relationship between men and women. There is an order to the Godhead. And so when we see that in 1 Corinthians eleven three, 3. Uh, it's on your, your sheet there. It says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. And so he's pointing to the fact that there is a, 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 an order in the Trinity. It's not that one is of greater value than the other. It's that one has a different role than the other. Christ has taken the submissive role to God the Father and has submitted to Him in, every, in everything. We see that in Ephesians 2. Paul, point, Paul uses Christ's submission to the Father as an example of our submission to the Father, how, how submissive we should be to God and how, how submissive we should be or how, how, how serving we should be of others. Um, and so he's, he's pointing to that order in the Godhead as representative of the order that's, that's also here on earth. Does that make sense? Questions? Thoughts, comments on that part? Everybody's good? All right, second. The Bible does not affirm mutual submission. But complementary roles in marriage, where the wife is called to submit to her husband and the husband is called to love the wife even to death. 
The reason that this is important is because of Ephesians 5.21. Ephesians 5.21. Do I not have that on the sheet here? I I guess I don't. Somebody read Ephesians 5.21 for me. See, see what he said there? Be subject, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, what does that say to you? What does that sound like? Be subject to one another. Right. It sounds like mutual submission, doesn't it? So the argument that comes is, well, what Paul's actually talking about here is that we're called to mutually submit to one another, which sounds a lot more like an egalitarian relationship, right? The question is whether or not Paul is actually saying that. Because the section that follows that, literally the next verse, starts with the, uh, the uh, in-home relationships, the husband and the wife, which makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Wives submit to your husbands as, uh, as, uh, as, to, as, I can't remember, I can't quote it now. Uh, say it again. Ask the Lord, yeah. Uh, sorry, blanked there for a second. Um, yeah, wives submit to your own husbands. Ask the Lord, for the, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So it, it sounds, though, though, like that's preceded in verse 21 by a command that saying, well, we should really just submit to one another, which would call into question, what does verse 22 mean then? What does 22 and following really mean then if we're all just to submit to one another? The the context of Ephesians 5, though, um, specifies the kind of relationships that Paul has in mind. So he works from the end of 5, husbands and wives. Hear how husbands and wives relate to one another. The next one in chapter 6 is children to their parents. The, The one after that is slaves to their masters. So he's laying out how the family code should actually function. So he's not laying out one of mutual submission. He never reverses it. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, and husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. But he, he never comes back and says, husbands, then also submit to your wives. There's never that, that change. Um, if further, Ephesians 5.24 makes clear that the kind of submission wives are to exercise is like the submission of the church to Christ. The, the latter is not mutual submission. The church is submissive to Christ's authority in a way that Christ cannot and never will be submissive uh, to us. Um, we should also be aware of the absence of any command that husbands be submissive to their wives, while wives are often told to submit to their husbands. Uh, the situation is never reversed. Now, the the biggest part of this, though, is that the word that he uses in verse 21 that's translated one another um, does not necessarily mean everyone to everyone, but some to others. But it can also mean some to others. Now, it sounds like, as I'm going through this, that I'm really just trying to beat on the wives a little bit. (laughs) Say, listen, wives, just submit, right? But why is this an important distinction to make? You say things now. Why is this an important distinction to make? That that it that we're not talking about um, mutual submission. That we're talking about an uh, an order. That even though both are created and both are uh, valued as being made in the image of God, 
that there is a difference in role. Why is that important? Why can't we just say, look, women can be pastors. Why can't we just do that? It'd be far easier. Why couldn't we just say something like, well, women could be pastors, right? Or why, why do we maintain that men have certain roles and responsibilities that are uniquely men? Go ahead, Jeannie. Okay. Okay. But would someone say, why couldn't then the, the wife be the... Yeah. I mean, I'm sure people say that. Yeah. Why couldn't a church just say, look, we're going to institute an order, and the order is there's a, 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 a woman who's going to be pastor, and then, you know, this is how we're going to do it. Why couldn't we do that? I, uh, part, of that, part of that is part of the, a bigger argument that you hear being made, which is part of the question that I've got here. How do you respond to objections that complementarianism is ancient patriarchy that's bad for the flourishing of women? What specifically? Is there a specific... Um, What is the history behind them wanting it, or what is the history behind it not being so until now? Both. I guess because, you know, I've heard people say, well, actually, there's more letters to the letters of Corinthians, so actually there's more of the story, and then, you know, actually it was only a specific situation that they were talking about, a specific woman, because that's why they were talking. I mean, this is a, a commentary that I read when I was trying to actually find some answers Ooh. when someone brought I need to get you a new commentary. That's, I'm going to put that on my note file here. <laughs> just kidding. I'm teasing. Right, right. Yeah, part of it is, uh, another part is, um, is, is not really hard. The, Paul lays out for the church a specific order. And he says, I do not permit women to teach men. And he, or, he roots that back in creation. So all the arguments, the ten points that I lay out there, most of those are also articulated by Paul. That's the reason they're there. is because... All of this is rooted in creation. And so um, what some egalitarian commentators will say is that that was specific to the culture at the time. In some way, there's, there's different shades of that argument. Like you pointed out, they were talking to one person. Or that was a situation going on in that church. Um, all of those... I was thinking about this earlier today. Yeah. Yeah, all of those uh, are, are going to be egalitarian arguments that are rooted in, well, that's specifically cultural. But the problem with some of those texts is that it, 
Paul goes back to the created order to make his argument. So it seems like if you wanted to make an argument that's timeless, we'll root it in creation, right? Uh, So that would be how you would do that. And it seems like what he's saying is not just, I don't allow this because that's strange and I don't want that. It seems like what he's saying is this is the order God has established since the dawn of time that the teaching role be be filled primarily by men. Namely, that the the, uh, spiritual leadership role be fulfilled by men. But that's not the same thing that he does always when, he, when it comes to certain clothing items and things like that. A lot of those are rooted back in shame um, or rooted in uh, just different arguments. Like Peter makes an argument for, for earrings that seems to be rooted in um, the inappropriateness, inappropriateness of the dress, much more like what cult prostitutes would, would wear. And so what, what we then understand from some of those texts, like the covering of heads and things like that, is that most of those are directed at bringing shame. And so what we would translate that to is what brings shame then in our culture. Those are the things that we stay away from. What uh, makes us look like prostitutes? We need to stay away from those things, right? Um, and that's what they're driving at. So, but the arguments for teaching is different, he roots them in, he, he makes a different argument for them entirely. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. That doesn't mean that it's received well right. in the culture. No, right, right. Right. Timothy? There's an order in the church as well that seems to be reflected in creation. Right. And, and he makes that argument in, in 1 Corinthians 11, which is what we read, is that he, he's saying, look, there's, everything has an order of those that take kind of the commanding positions and those that take the submissive positions. But if you look at God and Christ Jesus, or and the Holy Spirit for that matter, we don't observe them to be, to one, to be inferior to the other, but them to form different roles within the Godhead. And that's essentially the same way we think of the role of man and woman. But, but different, Christianity is largely different than even like Islam, where Islam would say every woman has to submit to every man. That's not the way Christianity uh, lays out the submission of women at all. It, 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 instead, it's laid out as uh, wives submit to their own husbands, right? And so it's not a, an across the board, you, you because you're a woman submit to every man, like it is in Islam, it is a is specifically inside the marital context, um, but still in the teaching roles, those have been given to men. That's the way God has ordered it from the beginning. Um, I, I think number two the, makes the, the yeah makes the point the strongest yeah um, especially in terms of spiritual leadership um, that I think make makes the point the strongest now if we were talking about why is the um, like why why should why should the man take a spiritual leadership role in his family and things like that. I would probably go to different texts, and I would probably make different arguments. But if we're saying, how do we know that there is a difference in role? It's because of these 10. 
it seems as though the man was dealt with differently in the punishment. It seems as though when Adam took the first bite, that's when the human race fell. It seems as though, so it seems as what's happening there is that God is placing a specific mantle on the shoulders of the man that he doesn't on the shoulders of the woman, right? Not that the two weren't complicit in the action, of course, but that, that, that Adam was the one that held the responsibility there. And so there was a, a distinction. Um, so that, that, that's the point, I think, is not that, um, that in these 10, this is, why, this is why you men should take a, a different role in your home or something like that, or this is why a man has to be the one that preaches, but more that what God is saying here is that there is a difference. Even though they're both made in the image of God, there, there is a distinction between the two. Um, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, one, one question here, how should a man exercise his role of headship in the raising of his children? This is a question that's of particular import, okay? Um, one of the things, it's, it's not uncommon to find a sermon preached on how wives should submit. That's not un- uncommon. What is uncommon is to hear a sermon preached on how men should take a leadership role in, their, in, the, in the raising of their children. Um, it seems as though in our culture, and, and I think maybe this has partly been why, uh, the, the egalitarian argument has been so loud of late um, is that if a man leaves his post and shirks his responsibility, that's okay. That seems to be the, the attitude that we as a culture don't look at that man and go, you should be ashamed of yourself, right? That it's okay for uh, men to kind of leave the responsibility of the raising of children to the women and I think that's directly in contradiction to Scripture, particularly Deuteronomy 6. If you look at Deuteronomy 6, and we will very quickly, because otherwise I'm going to get nasty texts from people uh, <laughs> that are watching children. If you look at Deuteronomy 6, and you can read some of this later, um, he, said, he, he continues to bring to mind the fact that God has given this land to their forefathers, He's given this land to your forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. And then he says, um, in verse 20, when your sons ask you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statute, uh, statutes and the rules that the Lord your God has commanded you? And he tells, he tells them it's, it's clearly directed towards fathers to tell their sons this, to prepare their sons with spiritual training. Now, should, we should ask the question, like, why doesn't he talk to the daughters? I mean, the daughters ask the questions too, don't they? <laughs> yes, they do. Anybody that has daughters knows they ask the questions too. Um, the Bible, it, it seems as, as though it's pointing us in the, in the right direction, that as the men go, so goes the country. As the men go, so, go the, so goes the culture. Um, men are going to take a role of leadership. Men, and I try to emphasize this with men as much as I can. 
You are leading your family even if you refuse to lead them. You're, you're leading them into slavery, essentially. You're leading them into poverty. You're, if, you refuse to, if a man refuses to work, he's leading his family into poverty. If he refuses to take an active role in dis- disciplining his children, he's leading them into rebellion. If he refuses to get off his rear end and actually do work around the house, he's leading his family into laziness. You're leading your family regardless of what you do. But the command is to lead them rightly, to actually take an active role in the raising of their children. And so that means that the ones leading the family devotion should not just be left to the the women. That shouldn't be abdicated. You should take a role in spiritually training your children. Go ahead. If Tom yells at me, it's your fault. Go ahead. I think the last thing you said was great. I'm swinging back around to something. So, so how? When has it been? Like, when did it start becoming more? Like, have there always been people who've been trying to put women in charge since the early church, or is this something of the last two hundred years? Um. I'm trying to think of specific examples that I've seen in church history, and none of them are coming to mind right now. I'm sure I'll think of 15 whenever I... Yeah. There's certainly been examples of female prophetesses in the Old Testament especially as well, Jezebel and things like that. Um, What? Yeah, of Baal? Yeah. Um, so I, I think there's been some examples of, of that, um, so especially in, in the cults. Uh, I would say what we're dealing with is relatively new, okay. uh, as far as I know. Um, there, there's, there's nothing's new under the sun. I'm, I'm sure there's bound to be lots of it going on, especially in other religions. Um, inside Christianity, I would struggle to bring a, a specific example to mind right now. But it's certainly something that we're dealing with for sure. Yeah. That's right. Right. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Right. Right. That's right. 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 No. Right. But as leaders, yeah. Right. Um, now, I think this too should be pointed out that most of what we've been talking about is in the context of family, and it's also in the context of a church, church leadership. Um, we haven't addressed like politics, and we haven't addressed any of those kinds of things. Those are different topics for different days. We could go down the rabbit hole forever. But um, let's leave it there for now. We'll pick up uh, in a couple weeks. So next week, is, we're not going to be meeting because Thanksgiving is the following day. And then uh, the following week after that is members meeting. So let's pray and then let's be dismissed. Heavenly Father, thank you for time to just meet together and talk um, and lay out a topic that's sometimes awkward for us to talk about and sometimes awkward for us to deal with and think through, but it's still really important as we think about what it means to be made in the image of God. And so I I just, I pray that uh, you would help this topic to really set in on our hearts and, and to help us understand and trust your word, even in, the, in spite of the fact that sometimes we may not understand it all, and um, that we would trust it in any way. 
uh, we thank you for it, and we pray that it, it, it provide fruit in the future. In Jesus' name, amen.